Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In the years leading up to the Second World War, the U.S. was represented in Japan by Ambassador Joseph Grew, born to a patrician family, Harvard-educated, ran away to the Foreign Service, and deeply respected by his fellow diplomats and Japanese politicians alike. From his arrival in Tokyo in 1932 to when he was eventually repatriated back to the U.S. in 1942 after Pearl Harbor, Grew dutifully reported to and advised the U.S. on what to do with an increasingly imperialist, militarist, and at many times dysfunctional Japan. And officials had listened to Grew, as Steve Kemper tells it in his book, Our Man in Tokyo, an American Ambassador and the Countdown to Pearl Harbor, the history of U.S.-Japan relations may have looked very different. Steve Kemper is a journalist and the author of A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, 10,000 Miles to Islamic Africa, A Splendid Savage, The Restless Life of Frederick Russell Burnham, and Codename Ginger. He has written for Smithsonian, National Geographic, Outside, The Wall Street Journal, BBC Wildlife, and many other magazines and newspapers. Today, Steve and I talk about Joseph Grew, his time in Japan, and how U.S. obstinance and Japanese imperialism, militarism, and dysfunction got in the way of his diplomacy. So, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about Our Man in Tokyo. I, I maybe want to start with Grew and kind of where Ambassador Grew comes from. I, mean, I know he's from Boston. He went to Harvard. I think he had a sister that was marrying to the Morgan family. Um, how does someone like that join the Foreign Service? Yeah, you you mentioned in your introduction that he ran away to the Foreign Service, which is a, a pretty good way to put it. Um, and by the way, his sister it wasn't his sister who married into the Morgans. It was a cousin. But anyway, yes, he was a Boston patrician. He went to Groton and then Harvard, just like um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was his classmate. Um, And then he was expected to go into Boston business or banking, as his father had done and his two older brothers had done. Grew had absolutely no interest in those. The idea uh, bored him to death. So his father, very alarmed, said, all right, well, you can go on a, a, a wingding around the world for a year, but when you come back, you're going to settle down here in Boston and, and do serious work. When he got back, though, he told his father, bad news, Dad, I, uh, I want the State Department, not State Street. And uh, his father was very alarmed at that, tried to get him to go into publishing in Boston. That didn't work out. And so grew Uh, went into the Foreign Service, which at the time uh, wasn't prestigious or even professional or even honorable. It was uh, full of wealthy cronies who were given patronage posts um, by their political um, uh, leaders. And so, you know, that's what Grew wanted to do, though. He wanted to, to give foreign service to his country and meanwhile have adventures while he was doing that. So, um, that's what he did. And he served in 14 posts. Um, he was one of the founders of the professional uh, foreign service, which as still has patronage jobs, as we all know, um, to the U.S. detriment often. But Grew helped to usher in the professional class of diplomats. And so for that reason, he's sometimes called one of the fathers of the, of the foreign service. And he was uh, very much looked up to by other people in the State Department. So... You know, grew eventually in this long career becomes the ambassador to Japan. Um, and before we get into all the history and all the twists and turns of that, um, I wonder if you might talk a bit about what Gru's 
normal life in Japan was like as the ambassador. It, there, there's a funny quote in your book based on, I guess, Gru's love of golf, where one of his fellow diplomats say, uh, we start cabling frantically to our superiors when you're not playing golf because we know something is wrong. Um, but what was kind of Gru's life in Japan like? Well, to handle the easy part first, yes, he did love golf. He played. He tried to play at least twice a week. Uh, he was kind of fanatical about it. Sometimes he would play 54 holes in a day, you know, something like that. He was a uh, he was a uh, kind of crazy about golf. Never very good. He rarely broke 100 for 18 holes, but he felt like he needed to get onto the golf course to release tension and stress. And uh, the longer he was in Japan, the more golf he needed to play. <laughs> so that diplomat who whom you quoted, uh, he got to play less and less towards the end of the 30s because there was so much to take care of, so much to do. Although he was, he was planning to play on the morning of the Pearl Harbor attack, we can get to that later on. Um, his daily life was, was a mix. An ambassador's life is a mixture of uh, tedious uh, dinner engagements, teas, dances, um, meeting with, with business representatives, with religious representatives, with the newspaper people. Um, and yet it's, it's also a very serious job often because you're dealing with the, uh, the top echelons of the, of the foreign government is, uh, in their foreign, in their foreign um, department. And so Gru, uh, he had his hands full. His, his main job was to, to create good relations between the two countries and to prevent bad relations. So that became increasingly difficult as the 1930s wore on. I mean, we can talk now about kind of the difficulty of that, that relationship. You know, I, I, I studied a lot of this history kind of, you know, in school, in college. Um, but I guess I'd never I'd never really studied what pre-World War II Japan was like domestically. Obviously, I know about the international invasions and stuff. But I guess I hadn't realized just how dysfunctional pre-World War II Japan um, was at the time. You know, again, kind of look, think about examples from your book, all the cases where hothead officers would attack the Soviets and then lose badly, and then nothing would happen. Um, so I guess, why were moderates in Japan unable to kind of rein in this increasingly militarist, this increasingly nationalist and, and imperialist kind of right wing? It's an excellent question, and it's a very complicated answer. Uh, the it, the right wing, especially the military right wing, started to get out of hand in the early 1930s. In 1931, um, the, the army that, that was stationed in Manchuria, um, because Japan had interest there, invaded Manchuria, a Chinese province. 1931, they staged and they staged in the um, an operation in which they blamed Chinese terrorists, and that was their excuse to go in and invade and take Manchuria. They didn't seek the permission of the civilian government in Japan before they did that. They said, we don't have, we didn't have time to do that. We were under attack. We had to act. And so they took Manchuria, renamed it Manchukuo, and there were no consequences for the people who had plotted this. Uh, there were no consequences at all. In fact, they became heroes in Japan for somehow starting the imperial dream for, for priming that motor. So that was the first thing that, that happened. The civilian government started to lose control over the actions of the military. Second, the civilian government began to lose control over the media, uh, which was taken over by the right wing and by the military. 
so that the Japanese people were not getting straight news. They didn't know, for instance, that the Japanese army had staged the um, event that led to the uh, takeover of Manchuria. The, the Japanese people didn't know that until after uh, World War II ended, when the truth started coming out. So there were many things that started to um, allow the right wing and the military to nudge out the moderates. And then you have you also have this uh, this problem of who's in power, who who has the power. And in Japan, it was very difficult to figure that out. And this was Gru's, Gru's major undertaking when he first got there. Where are the levers that I can that I can uh, push to make anything change, to make anything different? And he found that. <laughs> there were there were many many levers because no one was really in control no one was even really in control of the army as you mentioned the young hotheads often seemed to be running the army uh, the parliament the the diet as the, as it was called in Japan um, often seemed to kowtow to the military or they wouldn't they wouldn't um, they would not penalize the military for acting unilaterally in, in a way that that caused international mayhem. Um, the, uh, the, the emperor, who supposedly was the, the commander-in-chief, the spiritual leader, and the, uh, the, the top government official, actually had almost no power. He wasn't allowed to make any decisions because he was a god. And so since gods don't make mistakes, he wasn't allowed to make any decisions <laughs> to keep him divine. So, um, and then you had the cabinet, who also had quite a bit of sway, but all of these they were all they were all tussling with each other for control and eventually the military came out on top in in every aspect including foreign policy so there there's a lot there that links into questions i have on my list um but maybe let's let's i do want to talk about the emperor hirohito um you know i think in in your book he's he he does seem to have very little power to kind of control what's going on um, I guess, what's your view of the emperor and, I guess, his role in, in guiding Japanese policy? I, I know his culpability in the war is a matter for debate for historians. Um, mm -hmm. but kind of what's your sense of it? Well, you know, he's there, there have been a, a couple of biographies in, in recent years about him that, that, that portray him as the puppet master. Uh, who was really, un, you know, in control of Japan's foreign policy and in Japan's actions. And I, I must say, I found uh, none of that in, in my research in primary documents. So uh, I think that he did become a tool of the military, in my view. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the opposite. He became a tool that allowed the military to do what they wanted to do. And he did become a supporter of the military once war was declared, because He's the leader of the country, and he's not going to abandon his country during a time of war. That would be a, a terrible thing for him to do, and he, and he didn't do that. But in the 30s, he was pro-Western. He tried in, occasionally to uh, require the, the new prime minister to appoint foreign ministers who wanted, who wanted friendly relations with the West. Um, he was upset with with the military's attempts to make a, a, an alliance with Germany. He didn't think that was a good thing until he was finally talked into it. So he was a weak man, ineffectual man, um, who nevertheless had uh, power, at least um, at least th thin power that, that the military or any other polit politicians or right-wing leaders could use 
to further their own agenda. So uh, I know that he's a very controversial figure and he, he no doubt did contribute to the war effort because he allowed it to continue and it tried to inspire his people. And he wasn't prosecuted at the end of the war as a war criminal, as many wanted him to be. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not an expert on World War II. I'm a, I'm, I'm a researcher on the, what led to World War II. And to go back to, to a point you made before, I was shocked and surprised constantly during this research because like you, I know, I know, I know the basics of World War II in the Pacific, and I know a lot more about the, Nazi, the rise of Nazism and, and the war in Europe because we could talk about the reasons for that. You know, we know more about European conflict than we do about Asian conflict. So I was constantly surprised by what I found was going on in Japan all this volatility, these assassinations and plots and conspiracies. Um, and it's, it's interesting that in Germany, as we all know, there were plots against Hitler throughout, throughout the, the 30s and World War II. There were plots to try to assassinate him, to get rid of this maniac. In Japan, <laughs> the plots came from the right wing. They wanted, they wanted their, their leaders to be more fanatical, more right wing. It's, a, it's one of the differences between the two countries. So I, 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 I want to go back to talking about, about Ambassador Gru um, and kind of his, his view of what was going on to Japan, what he was delivering to the State Department. Um, you know, he's, he's, in one sense, he's more dovish. I know it's probably not the best term to use, but he's more, he seems to be more uh, supportive of diplomacy. He seems to want to work with the moderates. He's always encouraging the U.S. to work, well, to take the signals from the moderates as a chance to put U.S.-Japan relations um, on a better track. But he's also not an idealist. I think he also says, he also basically says, if you're going to uh, say that this stuff is bad, don't keep on making empty threats. If you're actually going to take a hard line on this, actually take a hard line on this don't don't talk about it um so kind of how how do you see kind of Gru's vision of well i guess of diplomacy and diplomacy in the context of kind of the the washington tokyo relationship well um it's a very good question you, you described the tightrope that Gru was trying to walk during his 10 years there uh he would reject the the description dovish because it's too close to the word appeaser which he also rejected. He was he was accused of both those things. Um, of course, he was he was working for peace. He was in, he was a diplomat. His main goal is to keep the peace with the country, the host country. So he felt like a failure when that when that didn't happen. Um, he's not an optimist. Uh, he's I mean he's not a I should say he's not an idealist. You're right. He's he's but he's an optimist, which means that he's always hoping that there can be an opportunity to work things out, to compromise. He was a deep believer in the power of diplomacy to do those things. Um, and diplomacy, you know, is, is, is based on rationality, logic, enlightened self-interest, mutual benefit, compromise, personal relationships. Um, and so he tried to use all of those things to maintain and to improve the relationship with Japan. Um, but those, those qualities of diplomacy can't stand for up forever against irrationality, conspiracy, fanaticism, um, and those things eventually overwhelmed 
the sort of enlightenment values of diplomacy. Um, they, they overwhelmed the possibility that diplomacy could occur. He was no, um, he, some historians have, have re referred to Gru as, uh, and so did people in the State Department, that he, quote, went native, that he was too sympathetic to the Japanese. Um, if, if, you, if you read the primary documents, if you read his diary, if you read his dispatches, that's just nonsense. He, he always looked for opportunities, as you mentioned, to let's encourage the moderates. That's our only hope of keeping peace here and getting these militarists out of the way. But he never was unclear about the fact that the moderates had almost no power. That if we don't op, if we don't try to boost them up, um, militarism is going to completely take over. So he, he was very clear-sighted about what could happen and what on, on good and bad, depending on the actions of the United States. Uh, so. I really, and he would too, he would reject the idea that he was an appeaser, that he had, was too sympathetic. Of course, of, of course he would be sympathetic, he would say. If you, aren't, if you aren't empathetic and sympathetic to your host country, you don't belong there as a diplomat because that, those are the qualities you need if you're going to be trusted and be able to do anything to improve relations. So I, I, I do want to, I do want to, touch on the 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 going i guess the quote unquote going native comment um but before i do that you know i it seems like if 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 grew has a nemesis um at least as portrayed in your book it's stanley hornbeck um who seems to constantly get in um grew's way and undercut everything that grew sends out of tokyo um but i i guess who was he and and how did his views um, I'm using the word constraint, what was possible between Washington and Tokyo. Yeah, Stanley Hornbeck was um, Secretary of, of State Cordell Hull's chief advisor on the Far East. Um, so Hornbeck is an interesting case. He got a PhD in history and he, he taught in China for a couple of years and then came home and eventually he, he uh, became the director on the uh, the Asia desk in the State Department. And from, from there, he, he rose to become the chief advisor to, to Hull about the Far East. So he was well known to have a bias for China and against Japan. And this became more pronounced during the 1930s for good reasons. I mean, Japan was, <laughs> Japan, the military in Japan was off the leash. They, they constantly broke their word. They were constantly bombing American properties in China. They, uh, they were doing everything to make someone like Hornbeck uh, more and more anti-Japanese. Uh, so there was there was good reasons for that. And Hornbeck was right there at at Hull's elbow. So Gru often spoke about um, that his value that he his views were not as appreciated as they should be because he was the man on the spot in Tokyo. Well, the man on the spot in the State Department was Hornbeck. So. That he, he had a tremendous influence on Hull, um, and he, as the 1930s wore on, he became more convinced that Gru was um, too sympathetic to the Japanese, naive, didn't understand what was happening there, and therefore his, his views had to be taken with uh, tablespoons of salt. And that, of course, undermined Gru's influence with Hull. So, I mean, the kind of go back a little bit i mean we, we talked about people at state thought that grew was um 
had had, had quote unquote gone native. Um, and that kind of brought me to question, you know, like, is is there a difference between how, you know, policymakers in D.C. saw the world and saw international relations and saw diplomacy and how ambassadors and diplomats in the field saw these questions? Um, I, I guess how did yeah, so how did people in D.C. and how did people actually in the field see the world differently kind of and, and what kind of differences came out as you were researching the book? Well, they, they do see the world differently, and it's, it's, it's of course they do. Uh, Hall was looking at the world uh, as a big chessboard, and Japan was, was one important part of it, but only one important part. You, Hall was trying to balance foreign policy with, with domestic concerns, too. The U.S. was an isolationist country. There, there, was, there were a lot of pacifists in America because of World War I. Americans did not want to get involved in a war in Europe, and especially not in a war in Asia, which seems so far away and unimportant. So Hull is trying to balance what he's the decisions he's making with a worldview and a domestic view. He's playing to domestic politics, and he's also having a, a world policy strategy. So Gru's view was deeply uh, vertical into Japan. Hull's was horizontal across the world. Naturally, they're going to be different. Another important point to make here is that um, in 1940, um, 1941, we had, we broke the Japanese diplomatic code so that Hull and FDR and Hornbeck, they were all reading all the cable traffic between the Japanese embassy in Washington um, and the, the Foreign Service Office in Tokyo to Berlin to Washington to everywhere. So, and they and Gru did not know that we had broken that code. They they didn't feel comfortable telling him because they were worried that Japan may have broken our code. So this was a secret that um, that uh, was so valuable because uh, the Hull could he he knew what the strategy was coming from Tokyo to Washington. He knew it. Uh, and Gru was trying to piece this stuff together in Tokyo. It was a tremendous advantage for the United States. Gru nevertheless felt like he had inside knowledge about the personalities and the people in Tokyo that were being discounted by Washington. Um, so it was a, it's pretty complicated. It, it's, not, it's not a simple, Gru thought one thing, the State Department thought another. It wasn't like that at all. It was, uh, it, there was this mix, this complicated mix, real life, in other words, not not just uh, easy history. So I I want to ask about some of the some of the kind of Japanese personalities, you know, prominent Japanese individuals, um, discussed in your book, and there's so many of them, and we're not going to be able to 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 get through um, most, let alone all of them. Um, you know, people like people like you know, Foreign Minister Matsuoka, Prime Minister Konoe, um, Yamamoto, Ambassador Nomura. But I guess in, in writing the book, what were some of the personalities, you know, good or bad, that kind of stuck out to you the most as you were kind of doing this research on on Japan's path to Pearl Harbor and the war? Well, I'd say, um, aside from the emperor, uh, the, the, the two main ones for me were two that you mentioned. Uh, Matsuoka, who was the foreign minister for a, a very eventful year um, during Gru's tenure, from 1939 to 1940, um, 
1941, 1940 to 1941. Um, and then Prime Minister Konoye, who was uh, <laughs> Prince Konoye, uh, who, who was Prime Minister twice during Gru's tenure in Japan, the first time in 1937 when Konoye got Japan into the the Second Sino-Japanese War, which is a complete catastrophe for both countries. And then the second time when he, when he took office in 1940 and uh, led Japan into the Axis and then into the, onto the verge of war before realizing what he had done and desperately trying to figure out a way for that not to happen. And I, we should talk about that secret meeting that he proposed with FDR at some point. But let's go back to Matsuoka, who was the most colorful Japanese figure, certainly in 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 my book in Japanese politics during this era. He was <laughs> he was unlike most Japanese. He was very assertive. He was uh, very openly ambitious. Uh, he was blunt in his in his speech, unlike most Japanese who are uh, more uh, sort of talk a slant around issues. Matsuoka was uh, antagonistic, aggressive. He came to the United States uh, looking for work when he was, I forget, I think he was 12 or something, and he, and he was uh, taken in by an American family. He spent, I think, six or seven years here. He got, he went to school here. He, he converted to Christianity. He learned English. His English was almost perfect. He got a degree from the University of Oregon Law School, uh, and he felt like he understood America absolutely uh, and loved America, and both those things were proven to be delusions um, based on the way he acted in 1940, 1941. So he's an amazing character, uh, the worst foreign minister that Grew had to deal with. And Grew dealt with 17 foreign ministers during his 10 years because the cabinets fell so often. Konye um, is, is interesting because he was um, of royal birth. He was uh, one from one of the oldest, noblest families in Japan. As I said, a prince. He, he was the, the mentor of uh, Prince Sionji, who was the most, the foremost politician of the previous generation, it was assumed forever that Prince Konye was sometime going to be the prime minister. But Konye didn't want the mantle of power and responsibility. He often had fainting fits and would take ill when when things got tough. Um, he was uh, a peculiar person. Um, not the kind of not the kind of man that you want leading your country when it's going through this very complicated and difficult period, uh, and he could not stand up to the militarists. In fact, in, in fact, he basically succumbed to them and adopted their program, to the great horror of his mentor Prince Sionji, who was um, liked the West and thought that Japan's future lay in alliances with the West, not in making them our Japan's enemies. I know, and, and and I don't want to stay on Konya, but just like reading about all the times, he, he just seems so useless. <laughs> he just again, like something really bad happens, he just like runs away to his villa or something. Um, it's just it's 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 just an amazing. It, I guess it's like it to me just reinforces the the dysfunction of of Japan um, leading up to the war. Mm. Um, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, I think I think that's that's correct. And he was um, he was uh, like the emperor in in that the military saw him as a as a useful face to use because he was very popular in Japan. He was young. He was tall for a Japanese, six foot tall. Uh, he was popular. 
and so that the military saw him as someone who could further their agenda, and they used him to do that. Um, his, his son, by the way, Prince Konyo's son, was on the Princeton golf team. Uh, he had strong ties to the United States. Uh, Gru got him um, onto a, a yacht to watch the, the Harvard Yale Regatta on the Charles River at one point in the 1930s. The, Gru played golf with him. Gru had dinner with him often. Um, it's, it's a very odd thing that these people who are our, our friends for years would suddenly switch and become, you know, seized with this imperialistic war fever that uh, required them to act so aggressively in the in the Far East, and then they struck us. You know, I mean, you. Um, it's actually a really good segue to my to my um, to my uh, one of my last questions. Um, you know, again, another thing that I that I didn't know. Um, I think I think people kind of know that oh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor because of the oil embargo, um, but I hadn't realized kind of how bad Japan's economy was even before the embargo happened. I think with 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 the war in China, and I guess it's beyond China, actually now putting quite a lot of costs on Japan's economy. I guess how bad were things in Japan? even before America started putting embargoes on, on the country? They were terrible. Uh, the the, the, the Sino-Japanese War drained the Japanese economy. The military uh, budget drained Jap the Japanese economy. The, the military was, was, was eating up 50% of Japan's budget, and many things were going towards the military. There, were, there was no polished white rice, for instance, the basis of the Japanese diet. You couldn't find that in Japan because it was all going to the military. You couldn't find clothing. You couldn't find um, appliances. You couldn't find anything that was made of metal because everything that was metal had to go to the munitions factory, including uh, wrought iron gates, street lamps, um, even buttons, uh, metal buttons. They were food. At, uh, at fruit, was you couldn't find fruit. You couldn't find meat. You couldn't find fish. It was all going to the military. Um, and so the Japanese people were, were suffering tremendously, but as Gru kept telling Hull um, and Hornbeck, who, who believed that, that economic measures would bring Japan to its knees, Gru kept telling them, no, they will, <laughs> they will eat tree bark if they have to, to support their emperor. They will never surrender because of, of want and deprivation. And uh, he was dismissed, that view was dismissed by, by, especially by Hornbeck, who's, who believed that Japan would never dare to attack the United States and kept telling Hull that right up to world, right up to Pearl Harbor, they will never possibly attack us. Gru is completely, uh, you know, he's a, uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so, yes, the, the, that war led to desperation. And then the U.S. started to do things that increased that desperation. We stopped the Commerce Act, which made Japan a most favored nation for trade. And we were Japan's most important trading partner for imports and exports. So when that, that document was um, negated by FDR, the Japanese were stunned because this is the first time that the U.S. had done anything concrete in retaliation for what Japan had been doing. And we didn't put tariffs on their goods right away. Um, Hull said, I just want them to know that we can at any moment. 
And that led to Japanese paranoia, more Japanese paranoia, more Japanese desperation. Then we started um, embargoing metals, steel, scrap iron. And then they, we, FDR told them, if you go into uh, southern Indochina, if you, if, you, if you don't stop, we're going to take more measures. They went right into southern Indochina. FDR put the freeze on, froze Japanese assets in the United States, which was deeply shocking to Japan. Um, and then, of course, finally came the embargo on oil. Though there were all of these measures that the United States took to say all these yellow lights, you better stop, you better stop. If you don't stop, things are going to get worse for you. And Japan blew right through all of the, the red lights, not even the yellow lights. And so to say that the war was caused, as you sometimes hear, especially from Japanese um, right wing scholars, that the FDR caused the war by embargoing oil. It's just nonsense. I mean, we gave them every chance in the world not to do what they did, and they did it anyway. You know, I want to I want to kind of end. Um, there's there's a as I was reading the book, there's kind of like there's an underlying I want to use the word tension. You know, I think it, it sounds like that um, maybe if the U.S. was more willing to work with the moderates, maybe if Japan was more willing to kind of listen to the like to, to pay attention to those signals from the U.S., um, that peace might have been possible. But working with the moderates might have solidified Japanese control of China, um, which was imperialist, it was nationalist, it was generally all told a bad thing. So, but 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 it would have awarded, but it would have avoided war between the U.S. and Japan. So, you know, what does this story and this history tell us about the trade-offs that we that sometimes have to be made for peace and diplomacy that happen in peace and diplomacy, and how to think about, I guess, these choices? Well, that's a really good question. It's a complicated one too. Uh, Gru recommended. Uh, real politic. He wanted to, he wanted the U.S. to accept the fact that Japan was the major economic and military force in Asia, and they deserve some deference in their hemisphere for those reasons, just as the U.S. expected deference in our hemisphere. He could never get the State Department to, to buy into that. And I'm not sure even if they had, it would have mattered because the the Japanese militarists were so bent on, on not just economic expansion, but military expansion. So Gru kept trying to find ways, as, as we've talked about before, to compromise. Uh, he, he told Hull often, the open door in Japan, which um, as, as some of your listeners may know, was a policy designed by the European powers and Japan and China to allow commercial equality in China. Um, and Gru tried to persuade Hull, that's that's done. The, the European powers, it, it's not going to work out now because Japan needs the resources in Japan and they will do what they, they have to to get them because Japan has no resources of its own. And if it wants to continue to grow as a, as a culture, as a power, as a, as a way of life, it's going to have to get these resources from Asia. So let's figure out how we can help them to get those resources without taking them and causing war. And that never quite worked out. It, it didn't work out. I, you mentioned in your introduction that it may have been possible if the State Department had listened to Gru 
to maintain peace. Uh, even Grew wasn't wouldn't wouldn't make that case because he felt, and, and in fact, he wrote that the the tools of diplomacy had been overwhelmed by events and attitudes in Japan, and the war probably would have occurred no matter what. But I do want to talk about this one other secret meeting that I mentioned earlier. In the late summer, early fall of 1941, just a few months before Pearl Harbor, Prince Konoye, who was the prime minister of Japan, proposed a secret meeting between himself and FDR in U.S. territory to come to some sort of compromise that would avoid war. This was stunning. No Japanese premier had ever left the country, and especially not for uh, enemy territory, potential enemy territory. And so Groot was very excited by this possibility, and he, he worked um, constantly, wrote a lot of dispatches about it. Hull, however, um, didn't believe that, that Cornier could deliver on whatever he promised FDR. He didn't think the Japanese promises were worth the breath that it took to make them. And so he smothered that idea in the crib. Um, and that's, you know, once that happened, once Gru was convinced that something might come of it, and he said, even if even if nothing, even if, if they violate it later, at least we should try. We should see what he has to say, what he's willing to do. And then if they violate it, then we can move to the next phase. But what do we have to lose by trying? Hull thought we had um, American prestige to lose. We would compromise principles, and Hornbeck was feeding him this stuff too at the same time. So uh, once that was smothered and it became clear to the Japanese that uh, we were not interested in talking, having the secret meeting, that just put gas on the Japanese militarist uh, determination to go to war with the United States. Konye resigned, Tojo became the prime minister, and the rest we know. I think that's a great place to end our interview with Steve Kemper, author of Our Man in Tokyo, An American Ambassador, and The Countdown to Pearl Harbor. But Steve, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might the next project be? Well, you can find my, my book just about any place. Um, any good bookstore should have it. It's, it's, you can certainly find it online. Um, and you can read, you can read um, about the book and other interviews on my website, uh, www.stevekemper.net. There's a lot of information there about the book and my previous books. As for what's next, um, a a long rest. <laughs> this was this was a very complicated book. It took quite a while. It was very intense, and. Uh, I think I'm taking my foot off the gas pedal for a while uh, to see if I want to get back in the race car. Well, it certainly sounded like it, it was definitely a book that um, looked like it took a lot of research, and I and I greatly enjoyed reading it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, this podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. 
next week. Join us for an interview with Sin Wen, author of the... Uh, I've, hang on, i got to give myself a break because I didn't actually update this part of the outro. One second. Uh, hang on. Okay, three, two, one, and... Next week, join us for, for an interview with Sin Wen, author of The King's Road, Diplomacy and the Remaking of the Silk Road. But before then, Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was fun. <laughs>